Macron, who's on a state visit. From Washington, the BBC's Barbara Plett-Usher reports. President Biden called Vladimir Putin's actions barbaric and sick. He said he'd be willing to talk with the Russian leader if Mr. Putin showed a desire to end the war, and then only in consultation with NATO allies. The solidarity on Ukraine had been shadowed by French criticism of U.S. clean energy subsidies, which Mr. Macron said could kill jobs in Europe. But Mr. Biden appeared eager to ease these concerns, saying the legislation had glitches that could be solved. A sixth letter bomb has been discovered in Spain after one was intercepted at the U.S. Embassy. The Interior Ministry said the letters, all received in just over a week, were similar and contained a pyrotechnic material. Here's the BBC's Guy Hedgeco. Inevitably, people are talking about the possible Ukrainian connection, the Ukrainian embassy, the military base, and also the Spanish government is being targeted. The Spanish government has voiced support for the Ukrainian government. Now, also, one other detail which people have been looking at closely as well is that reportedly this weapons manufacturer up in Saragossa, which received one of these letter bombs, has been supplying grenade launchers which have been sent out to Ukraine to help Ukraine's fight against Russia. The South African president, Cyril Ramaphosa, is facing mounting questions about his future after an inquiry found evidence that he may have committed misconduct. He's been consulting colleagues in the governing ANC after postponing an expected address to the nation. His spokesman, Vincent Maguena, said all options were on the table and appealed for calm. Whatever decision the president makes, that decision has to be informed by the best interest of the country and that decision cannot be rushed and cannot be taken in haste. The opposition have called for Mr. Ramaphosa to resign. He's accused of covering up the theft of millions of U.S. dollars in cash from his farm three years ago. Three members of Quebec's Assembly in Canada have been barred from the chamber for refusing to take an oath of allegiance to King Charles. The Speaker said the ban on the Parti Québécois legislators was final. All elected officials in the majority French-speaking region are required to swear an oath to King Charles, who is Canada's head of state. Japan have qualified for the knockout stage of the World Cup in Qatar in dramatic style by beating Spain 2-1. Spain also go through, but the result means Germany are out of the tournament, despite beating Costa Rica in their final group match. The Japanese victory leaves them top of the group. And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning. This is Back Chat for Friday, December 2nd. Welcome to the show. I'm Andrew Work. And I'm Janice Wong. On today's Back Chat, we're talking about the upcoming winter flu season and concerns about a possible twindemic in the coming weeks. Local health authorities are bracing for an increase in cases of ordinary flu, with the population now less immune and more susceptible to a serious outbreak after two years without a winter flu surge. And with COVID-19 figures remaining at around 10,000 per day, public hospitals have been given $790 million in extra funding to pay for more beds and manpower to deal with a possible rise in the number of patients. So how big of a risk are we facing? Is the healthcare system ready for a possible twindemic? After 9.15, we hear about a new technique developed by local scientists to increase the efficiency of hybrid rice production. And then at 9.25, RTHK sports correspondent Adam Tung will kick off with the latest on the World Cup action. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page. 
Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or just give us a call at 233-88266. Kicking off today's show, we are going to begin with Dr. Michael Wong, who is with the Hospital Authority, where he is a Hospital Authority Chief Manager of Cluster Performance. Good morning, Dr. Wong. Good morning. Morning. Dr. Wong, uh, is it time to panic? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or, I don't or think we it's got time things to in panic, hand. but we need to be alert. <laughs> okay, so what, what's the situation? What, what is the concern? Uh, because uh, since we have uh, universal masking uh, since the COVID uh, era, uh, we didn't have any significant outbreak of influenza in the community for the past two to three years. Mm. So uh, essentially our population immunity against influenza A has, been, has dropped dramatically. If another... Uh, epidemic of influenza hits us, the seriousness will be uh, much more serious than in the past. So uh, we are a bit worried this year. Okay, and I mean, people normally haven't taken the flu that seriously unless they're elderly. Like, I I don't know anybody that's ever gotten a flu shot until this year. All of a sudden, people are saying, yeah, I'm actually thinking of getting a flu shot. Is this something everybody should be doing? No, Actually, we have been, the government have been promoting flu shot every year for the uh, high-risk individuals or the uh, people with age 50 or above, they are, have, could have a free flu shot at, the GP, at their own GP or one of the, our clinics in hospital authority and uh, also children as well. And in the past, uh, the, we have a lot of people getting flu shots. But since last year, somehow uh, people are tired of getting vaccine. They have been getting a lot of uh, COVID vaccine, but they are not getting their flu shot last year. So we are asking uh, more of our susceptible individuals, especially the elderly, to get, get a jab this, this year. And you talked about susceptible individual like the elderly. What about um, children? I mean, earlier you mentioned uh, because we haven't been wearing masks, uh, we've been wearing masks for the past uh, two or three years, um, we, our immunity may be lower against uh, the flu virus. Um, would you think, would, do you think uh, the situation is uh, maybe more serious for kids who, who have not been exposed to uh, yes, the flu kids, virus? Kids as well. Uh, they are both susceptible individuals. Uh, adults of 30s or 40s, we are less worried. Uh, even they get a flu, probably they just need to have a rest at home and uh, see their own GP. But if the if a elderly get a flu, they probably get into the hospital. And children uh, as well, they are they tend to need the hospital care more than a general adults, and they might develop some serious uh, complications like uh, encephalitis, uh, which are very life-threatening conditions. Yeah, that starts to sound a little scary for parents. How, you know, part of this is is being theorized because we haven't had a flu surge for the past couple of years. Um, how many people normally die in from the flu in Hong Kong every year? And have those numbers gone down in the last couple of years? Uh, let's put it this way. We, uh, in the past, uh, the mortality rate of flu is below 1%. That means 100 people get, get a flu less than 1% of people uh, die, less than one people die out of 100. Uh, this number looks small, but if we have a million people get flu, this will be a huge number, just as COVID. The COVID mortality rate isn't higher, but if a lot of people get it at the same time, the lot of people actually will die. And because a lot of people getting it at the same time, all of them rush to the hospital at the same time, 
then the hospital will be overloaded, and this will be a trouble for us. Is there, are more people coming to the hospital with flu because they're concerned about COVID? Are people getting the symptoms and thinking, oh, I better go and see the doctor? You know, where nor- maybe a few years ago, they would have just, ah, I'll just stay at home for a couple of days. I mean, are more people going to the hospitals or more people coming in that you're thinking you guys really didn't need to come in at all? Now, people are used to getting their own rapid antigen test, so they probably could discern whether they are having a flu or having a COVID. They probably will do a rapid antigen test themselves. What we are worrying is that those elderly who are already very weak with a lot of chronic disease, once they get an infection, either COVID or flu, they will become, they will deteriorate and need a hospital care. So these are what we are worrying about. And uh, Dr. Wong, you were warned of a flu surge uh, this winter. How bad do you uh, expect it will get? Now, we are not very sure. We are still having universal masking. This is one of the good signs at this moment. Uh, data from the uh, test lab testing, uh, only 1% of uh, specimens sending for a flu test are positive. In the past, uh, in the past areas where we don't wear, usually wear a mask, this will be something like around 10, 10% or more. So the, uh, this flu level in the society now is still relatively low. But as you know, we are having uh, World Cup now. People are staying late at night going to bar. And uh, we are no imagine. longer as alert as we have uh, COVID. Uh, 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 initially, having the COVID, so uh, we are a bit worried about this. But you don't expect it to be as bad as, uh, for example, like the situation in the US or, or some parts of Europe, right? Uh, probably better because we are still wearing masks most of the time, but they are already off masks for quite some time. Right. And uh, do you have any uh, idea when the uh, peak flu season will be this year? I mean, um, I looked at the Center for Health Protection's uh, Flu Express uh, this morning, and it says the latest surveillance data showed that the um, overall seasonal influenza activity in Hong Kong remained low. So, so when, when do you think this uh, peak flu season will come? Now, the whole, whole winter is at risk, uh, so uh, we uh, need to be vigilant about the, the flu. But we can't tell when it, when it will come, just like we can't tell when will be our next wave of COVID. So uh, it's a bit hard to predict. Right. And, and uh, of course, uh, the hospital authority has already allocated $790 million in extra funding to hospital clusters to pay for more beds and manpower to deal with the uh, possible uh, winter flu surge. Um, how confident are you that this will be enough to handle the uh, increased demand uh, of hospital services uh, this winter? Because, I mean, um, like, like we talked about, apart from this expected flu surge, we, we also have COVID and uh, also uh, the chronically ill, like you uh, talked about earlier about the elderly. They also uh, need need more care during winter period because uh, uh, maybe of the cold weather, right? Exactly. The cold weather will cause uh, those with chronic disease to have exacerbation. They are more likely to get in the hospital. So uh, we are expecting more people getting in uh, during winter. Usually before the COVID era, we have uh, nearly 6,000 attendants to our accident and emergency department per day. And uh, we have more than a thousand admission to our medical ward each day. At the moment, we are slightly below a thousand uh, admission per day level, uh, which is equivalent to more or less an autumn season of a normal autumn season. 
So uh, as the winter gets deeper and the weather gets colder, we're expecting more. And uh, usually in the past, uh, adding around uh, 800 uh, temporary beds, adding some staff in the accident emergency department will probably suffice to survive the winter. But if our, our population is not getting any uh, flu jab and uh, and the effect of the COVID vaccine is waning, or the previous infection of individuals is waning, then uh, we're expecting more coming in. And uh, if the condition is too serious, we probably need to adjust some of our surface, like reducing some of the elective surgery, which we don't want to see. Mm. So with the 790 million in extra funding is this uh, is this funding that can cover for temporary measures only or will this give you the ability to build in some more permanent capacity when we hear the funding is to pay for more beds and manpower i guess manpower could be temporary or does it allow you to hire for permanent positions and when you say more beds does it allow you to create just temporary beds or can you put in some extra permanent capacity this this funding you just mentioned is actually for temporary beds and manpower uh, you each, each winter, we reserve an uh, extra funding for this purpose. But annually, uh, hospital authority is uh, expanding its capacity. This financial year, we are in, uh, adding 394 beds. Uh, so we are also adding some permanent capacity as well. But as the population is aging, we expect that each year the, the demand will be increasing. And then where are we um, getting the uh, healthcare, these uh, temporary healthcare staff from? Is it um, from um, existing healthcare staff who are being paid to work uh, extra shift or extra hours, or or are there new uh, healthcare staff? Uh, Actually, there are uh, three different sources. One is uh, most of them are from our own staff. They work extra time. Uh, We have a special honorarium scheme for them to work extra time. And the other source is uh, part-time staff or low-income staff, which most of these are either some retired staff or some uh, staff working in the private market. They use their spare time to work with us. We, for example, we have a lot of low-income staff in the Hong Kong Infection Control Center, which is helping out there. And the third one source is the agency staff. Uh, we are hiring some agency nurses and supporting staff to help our wards. Okay, and, and I mean, if the flu surge doesn't materialize, um, is the money going to get spent anyways? Because I, I understand that manpower is, is at a shortage and people are overworked and maybe feeling a little bit underpaid. Um, will you use the money to kind of relieve some of the pressure on the overworked people in the system, even if the surge doesn't happen? Now, even if there's no flu, we are expecting, as we just said, the cold weather will cause the chronic disease to coming in uh, more frequently and we still have COVID around. The COVID is not going to leave us uh, very soon. So we are still expecting that we need uh, more workload. So we are still using this extra funding for the uh, special on the scheme and uh, part-time staff as well. I guess one of the areas you might spend some of the money would be on testing. And we are now joined on the line by Dr. Vijay Krishna, Dana Sakarian, who is an associate professor with the Division of Public Health Laboratory Sciences at Hong Kong U's School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Vijay. Good morning. 
Good morning. Um, you know, we've, we're, we're, we're talking with Michael Wong, the uh, hospital authority from the chief manager, and about this new funding that is coming into the system. Is some of that going to get spent on testing? Uh, Dr. Wong, I know that you have to leave at 845. Are you uh, checking out or can you stay with us for a few more minutes? And he's gone. Okay, so v, Dr. Vijay, do you think some of this money uh, that's been announced is going to come into testing for COVID and flu? I have flu? no idea, actually, because uh, my expertise is regarding um, epidemic dynamics in the city and not economics in particular. Okay. Very good. Uh, do we need more testing? Is that something you're advising? Uh, you know, we're talking about COVID and flu, but uh, are we ramping up testing for, for flu? I mean, I think uh, we don't have to... Um, get too carried away with uh, COVID-19 case numbers in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Hong Kong is reasonably safe uh, from uh, explosive citywide outbreaks compared to, you know, um, uh, mainland in particular where the, the COVID-19 is still a major public health concern. Um, with, this, with regard to the circulation of multiple viruses, I mean, we, uh, Dr. Wong explained really clearly in terms of, you know, we've had um, really low uh, immunity because the viruses have not been circulating for the past two to three years. Uh, people have not been vaccinating as regularly. That's a big concern because I think that's one of the collateral damages of COVID management in the city for the past two, three years. And, and that needs to be resurrected you know, immediately, I think, uh, because it's, it's really important that we intensify influenza uh, vaccination campaign because, as Dr. Wong very nicely explained, that the elderly are quite uh, affected by influenza because of its evolution over time. Uh, but again, children as well. Uh, but then it's just not a twindemic, right? It's many other respiratory viruses have been contained as well. And and I've seen the terms tridemic as well because uh, RSV is another major respiratory virus, uh, which primarily uh, infects really young children. So globally, there's an estimate of one in 60 uh, very young uh, children less than 60 months die of RSV. And we don't have a vaccine for RSV. We do have a, a mono, monoclonal antibody prophylaxis. So there's multiple concerns in terms of, you know, the season where there could be an increased epidemic of multiple viruses. Having said all this, though, I really think Hong Kong is reasonably safe from an explosive citywide outbreak like we saw in February last uh, this year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. That's probably a lot already. We won't ask me another question. <laughs> we certainly can. We've got plenty. We've got plenty for you. Is, it, so why is why are vaccination rates going down? Uh, Doctor Doctor Wong suggested maybe people were tired of getting vaccinated. Is there also a perception that uh, with with flu vaccines, uh, there's a new one every year because they're kind of guessing what the next strain of flu is going to be, and sometimes they get it right and sometimes they don't. Is is that the case? Uh, not really this time, actually. So we've been following um, the, the changes in the flu, you know, the, the variant strains for the last three years very closely, with the, along with the WHO colleagues. And we've seen, you know, uh, the, the viruses spread and become locally circul- uh, circul- uh, circulating more locally rather than actually globally circulating. So that's one of the characteristics of influenza, where we know the dynamic effects, you know, the viruses get repeatedly introduced because of very high travel. Um, there's lots of transmission chains which occur in the community over time. But now it's all changed because, you know, people who get sick don't travel as often. Um, and uh, really, influenza is not going to cause an explosive citywide outbreak. So there's, there's lots of nuance in terms of transmission. But overall, uh, having said that, again, the risk is much lower, I think, in Hong Kong uh, this season. Right. So there, there are fewer chains of transmission. So you've been able to, you've been able to uh, zero in on the proper target for the flu vaccine this season is what you're saying. I mean, so the, we, we globally track what viruses circulate, and ultimately there's one or two strains which has become dominant uh, since 
the opening of the of the globe uh, slowly over the last year and we have a really good idea in terms of what strain is actually circulating now uh, in each of the four components of the vaccine we have four kinds of flu or one of them has disappeared by the way oh. there's three now um and because of the control measures over the last uh, three years one of them has disappeared and the other three uh, is circulating and we have, we have a really good idea and uh, the existing vaccines work really well against uh, the ongoing strains Okay, and and when you know we talked a little bit earlier about uh, vulnerable uh, vulnerable categories of people, um, I have to admit I don't think I ever took my kids to get a flu shot because I never knew anybody whose kids had problem with flu. We kind of we knew about it as a theoretical problem, but not something that was real in our lives. Janice, did you ever get your kids vaccinated against the flu? Well, I did because uh, one of my kid he he had a like a he has asthma, so so the doctor did recommend him uh, to get his flu shot. So yeah. Okay. So you did that. You're a good mother. But I mean, uh, Dr. Vijay, is this is this a um, I mean, is this something that parents should should maybe take a little more seriously than than many do? I mean, I, I strongly uh, recommend the parents to consider, especially when, you know, there's other conditions with the children that need to be protected and extra. Um, it's not it's recommended the current influenza vaccine for children, but it's not mandatory anywhere uh, in the world. Um, and Hong Kong has other measures, such as you know school closures and, and things like that, which they can use to mitigate. So I don't really think um, it's mandatory, but it's highly recommended, and it can actually have a really good effect in, uh, in minimizing severity in that age. Uh, probably reduce uh, a lot of morbidity as well. So yes, probably. So it's a good vaccine, and you should take it. Right. And Dr. Dennis Akron, I mean, we talk about the vulnerable uh, vulnerable groups like uh, the elderly and uh, children. And uh, looking at the past, uh, over the past two or three years because of COVID, do you think uh, some of the younger kids who were born uh, during uh, this uh, period have uh, lower immunity because they, are, uh, they haven't really been uh, exposed to a uh, flu virus? Do you think um, uh, more care should be taken for, for, for young kids? That's certainly right, actually. So there's, there's been a lot of discussion and, um, and studies around this already. And people have estimated that uh, in the last three or four years, there's a, there's a greater group of children who are susceptible now, who accumulated uh, over time. So uh, in comparison to previous years, we expect to see a greater burden in, in slightly elderly children, like five years, six years, seven years, mm. than in previous years, just because of this accumulating um, uh, susceptibles. And we're just calling this the immunity gap, uh, which, which didn't exist before the COVID-19 pandemic, and it's just occurred now over the past three years. Hmm. Uh, the term twindemic is finding its way into local media. Um, is this in terms of a public health issue where the public health system is going to have to struggle with uh, perhaps, you know, dealing with COVID cases and a flu surge? Or is this something that can happen in individuals? Can a person, you know, what, what would be the impact of having COVID and the flu at the same time? I don't know that I've ever heard of that, but is that a thing? I mean, uh, personally, getting uh, two infections of respiratory viruses is not uncommon. It, it can occur. Although there's some interference has also been seen when you get one infection, I mean, your innate immunity is, you know, bolstered up. So that kind of prevents the other viruses infecting at the same time. Um, but I don't really think, you know, for example, the issue will be mainly with people who get, get one infection and get sick and then get another one uh, after a few days. I think that's basically prolonging your severity over time. And that's a greater risk for your health as well. And that's literally what it is. But in terms of the terms of the word trendemic or tridemic, I really think it's a very catchy, uh, clever phrase, a uh, clever public health campaign. And I, I think I, I, I came, uh, I saw it originate in, in London probably. I'm not really sure where it originated. But it's really telling the public that this is the season that you need to get vaccinated. We've not had much flu. We have, we do have lots of COVID-19 as well. 
already, don't tie it down, have the flu shot as well. So I thought it was quite clever as a, as a campaign. So, well, here, here's an idea I've got from one of our, our one of our uh, listeners who emailed in. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, uh, and he basically says uh, maybe more people should be taking the vaccine beyond the emphasis on the young and elderly. He says maybe the flu vaccine could be offered to all age groups when they have their COVID jabs or visit their doctors and make it free to all age groups instead of restricting it to kids and the elderly. Surely the relatively small cost of this measure would be well spent in reducing hospital admissions, deaths, and reduced economic activity. Uh, that's from Matt. And I mean, would that make sense if we go in and you go in to get your COVID vaccine and say, hey, while you're here, you want to get a flu shot? Sure. Why not? I mean, does that make sense? Or do you, do you want to take two at the same time? Or That makes uh, great sense. Actually, I, I don't mind taking two, sh- two shots at the same time of two different viruses. And it's not unknown previously. And we do um, give children different kinds of vaccines at the same time, um, many mandatory vaccines as well. So um, I really think it's an excellent suggestion and by Matt, and it's great that we should do it. And I think actually, I think uh, some of the vaccination centers already do that, actually. Yes, yes. Mm. I'm getting to be a bit of a vaccine junkie, you know. I just, any any vaccine I can get, give it to me. Um, I guess somebody who might disagree with that. uh, We've got a couple of emails here. Uh, Rick still wants to know, why why are we the only clowns on the planet still wearing utterly useless masks? Um... I guess some people still think the masks work. Dr. Vijay? Um, Pro-mask? I, I sympathize uh, with the caller because uh, we've, we've been wearing masks for too long. Um, I really think some of the policies are seem illogical. For example, you know, outdoor masking and things like that. And, and the government's very slowly cutting them down. Uh, I'd like to actually um, have them do it faster. But perhaps uh, this is not the right time to drop off everything when we are expecting lots of the viruses come into the community. Gotcha. We're going to talk about some of those other viruses after the news. Janice? And uh, earlier, I mean, Dr. Dr. Wong in the program, he he did warn of a flu surge this winter, and he said a part of the reason is because uh, people are traveling more, they're traveling to places where there is a a flu outbreak, um, and then they bring the virus back, or or there's a a bigger possibility of them uh, bringing it back. Um, What's your view on that? I mean, looking at the situation in the U.S. and uh, uh, places in uh, Europe. Um, I've, I mean, so traditionally Hong Kong um, seasons match with what's really going on in the northern and southern hemispheres. So we have a January to March season and then a small blip in July to August as well, matching the southern hemisphere. So the demography, what travels to Hong Kong a lot, has changed quite a bit in the last two or three years, in the last few months. So I think it's quite different where, where more local, uh, local people are traveling and then coming back. Um, so I think these dynamics are going to be quite different. And we don't really understand uh, what's going on in these regions where people are traveling. So I've not been really closely following Thailand, for example, if people are traveling there and coming back rather than going to the U.S. and coming back uh, a lot often. So these dynamics change in terms of what virus is circulating. And that's one of the reasons it's good to keep tracking, uh, tracking especially in Southeast Asia, because it's always a hot spot. Uh, lots of um, um, cities with lots of tourists. And so this travel, I think, determines what kind of virus is circulating in Hong Kong at any time. Uh, but again, um, it depends also on how quickly the transmission chains catch up in the community. And that determines by, you know, the facial masks and, and limitations in the city. So all this coming together, I don't think there's going to be an explosive outbreak. And because we don't really hear those explosive outbreaks nearby Hong Kong yet. Mm. Have epidemiologists ever tried, in particular in Hong Kong, have they ever tried to link uh, the volume of traffic flow 
to different uh, diseases, like whether even the com- different rhinoviruses and the common cold or, or flu strains coming into Hong Kong based on where people have been traveling. I mean, uh, the big wave, you know, the big numbers, of course, it's, is the Hong Kong-China travel, which has been closed off for a long time. But but do you ever try to link traffic flows to different strains of different uh, viruses? We have. Uh, we have. Uh, and this, the, the, the transmission dynamics, particularly influenza viruses, have been studied intensively. And over the last 10 years, there's been lots of studies trying to integrate, especially, you know, mobility data sets um, and, and many other data sets like that. And we have a really good idea. And, and, and seasons and, you know, uh, outbreaks in cities really match um, where the flights are coming from more often. And so really, you know, people are the ones who carry the viruses all the time. And we also know how the different viruses differ based on what demographics they infect. So there's a virus which infects, you know, the middle-aged more often and that flies more often and it spreads more quicker. Um, the, the one which actually is the biggest burden called H3N2, but it's the ones which infect children more often, don't spread more often, they cause localized outbreaks more often. So there's like kind of a uh, gradient in, in terms of transmission patterns between, between these viruses. And you can see that from the uh, from the traffic flows. That's super interesting. Huh. Um, well, uh, we're right now we're talking to uh, Dr. Vijay Krishna Danisakarian. He's an associate professor at the uh, Public Health Laboratory Sciences Division at Head Coyu School of Public Health. And he'll be with us after we break for the news. Uh, a couple of quick ones. Richard uh, on our Facebook page says COVID figures are not remaining at around 10,000 a day. Please check the charts and stop fear mongering. I think uh, we did check the charts. Uh, yesterday's numbers from the Center for Health Protection showed us at about 10,000 uh, cases, whether they're going up or down. I can't say at the moment. We'll have to wait and see over the next few days. Uh, we are also looking at the weather. You probably noticed it was a little bit chillier when you went out today. Uh, today it's going to be mainly cloudy, rather cool in the morning, but we are going to get some sunny, sunny, sunny intervals. Temperatures will be rising over the weekend with more bits and bits of sun uh, interspersed with that cloud. Cool in the morning, early next week. It is now 15 degrees Celsius. We have 69% humidity here in beautiful Hong Kong. against former world champions. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Uh, Welcome back to Back Chat with Janice Wong and me. I'm Andrew Work. Uh, We're talking about the upcoming winter flu season and concerns about a possible twindemic flu plus COVID in the coming weeks. And if that isn't enough for you, avian flu might be back on the menu as well. Uh, we are talking right now, continuing from the first part of the show, uh, Dr. Vijay Krishna Danasakaran, who's an associate professor with the Division of Public Health Laboratory Sciences at Hong Kong U School of Public Health. And we are now joined on the line with Dr. Surya Padel, who is an assistant professor of poultry at the Department of Infectious Diseases and Public Health, City University of Hong Kong. Uh, uh, Dr. Padel, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. So we, we've had a lot of COVID talk, uh, flu talk, COVID plus flu talk, uh, but we're also told that avian influenzas may be uh, back. Uh, but I have to admit, I have to ask, is this an economic phenomena or is this a, a legitimate threat, threat to public health? I don't think I've ever known anyone who got avian flu, but I do hear about a lot of birds getting killed and people losing money. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so basically, uh, we, we recently had one case of avian influenza in one bird in Maipo. Um, and it's quite, what, what we need to understand is it's not unusual to see avian influenza in wild birds, uh, because birds are, uh, the wild birds and domestic birds are mostly affected with uh, avian influenza. Uh, 
also we need to keep in mind that avian influenza can be zoonotic, so that means it can infect humans as well. And if we look back in 1997, there was the first outbreak of avian influenza in Hong Kong. So uh, there is nothing to panic, but we need to be careful. I mean, it, it kind of has the feeling like it's an open manhole in the street. You know, you, you put some cones around it and then fix it and everybody forgets. You know, when they, when they find a bird with avian flu, it kind of feels like the same thing. It makes a little announcement about it and then nothing happens. I mean, uh, as you said, there were cases in 1997. I was here. Yeah. Okay, and about how many people caught it back then? Do you remember? Uh, at that time in Hong Kong, there were 18 cases and six people died. Um, wow. So One yeah, in three. So that, <laughs> that's quite, yeah. that's, a, that's, a, that's a killer. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, but it's a, it's a, it's a, the, uh, the economic impact in in um, in poultry industry, especially, is is huge. Just to give you an example, until October this year, uh, 47 million bird was killed in the United States in 2022, and uh, 1.8 million birds were killed in UK and similar figure from from uh, Spain, from France and Netherlands and so on. So. Uh, the economic impact is, is uh, very huge, and this can affect on the food safety, food security, uh, but not to forget the genetic importance of the of the pathogen to the human as well. Right. And uh, Dr. Pardell, you mentioned about uh, the situation in the U.S. and in the U.K., that millions of birds have uh, died in this uh, record-breaking outbreak of avian flu. Um, what is so unusual about this outbreak this time? Uh, so... So, but, but we we need to uh, we need to make a difference. Here is a, a difference between Hong Kong and and rest of the world. I'm not rest of the world, but uh, but especially in U- Europe and and America, uh, because all these 47 million birds were not dead; they were killed. Uh, so that means in Hong Kong we are using vaccination to protect the uh, poultry. In uh, uh, so it's it's a mandatory use to use uh, vaccine against avian influenza. But in Europe and the United States, uh, vaccination is still not allowed. So stamping out, meaning when there is an outbreak, then the whole flock is basically killed. So to pre- that's, that's the way to prevent avian influenza. So, so it makes a big difference. That's why the, uh, so just to make it clear that 47 million birds were not dead, but they were uh, killed because of, of the preventive measures against avian influenza. I guess it, I guess it, uh, the tragedy from the human vo- viewpoint is that they were killed and not eaten, <laughs> because I guess they're all killed in the end, aren't they? Sorry, I said that they're all killed in the end. I mean, when we say they're killed, they're killed and not eaten. That's the uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah, the yeah, impact. Yeah, they all get killed in the end. Of course, of course, yeah, but just not for the human consumption. They were they are killed, and there is a specific procedure to uh, to avoid the. Uh, transfer of of these pathogens to humans. Sure. So, so yeah. Dr. Vijay, have you have you tracked uh, have you tracked uh, transmissions of avian flus from birds into people? And does it happen more often in places where there where there are like major outbreaks, like we're talking about? And with respect to human concern, I think Dr. Pardale explained it really clearly in terms that it's a it's a risk when you're actually very close to poultry. What's special, though, what's really happened in the last two years is that the viruses have become really adapted to infect wild birds. So apart from economic disaster, I think it's an ecological disaster, and birds have been dying continuously, um, and and these are just remote birds as well, dying continuously for the last two years. 
And we're seeing um, outbreaks and deaths of wild birds even in summer over the last two years in Europe. And this is highly concerning. I think the trends has been previously, you know, since 1997 when um, uh, you discussed earlier first outbreaks. And it has been in Asia for many years. And it has always been a risk of, you know, people getting close to poultry. And it's just not been like, you know, those 18 people. There's been like thousands of people. You have another one called H7N9. There's like a few other different types which circulate in Asian poultry. But um, the poultry, you know, the work that has been done over the last two decades now has actually quite enhanced our poultry system. And there are lots of systems in place that we can track these outbreaks really quickly. But what we see in the last three years is there's an increased level of outbreaks in Africa going on at the moment. And with these, and these sites are very close to these major flyways, which can, you know, spread these viruses to North America. And the most recent outbreaks were in Peru. So this, this, you know, the, the dramatic expansion of the virus, and when the virus goes to these new poultry industries with different levels of biosecurity, you know, they were not expecting a highly pathogenic avian influenza, and that increases the risk. And there's another local population of, you know, locally endemic avian influenza viruses and the mixing of these viruses. And the final compounding factor is really the uncertainty at the moment with COVID and the immunity. Usually the global immunity is quite high with seasonal influenza, which, you know, has a cross-protection against avian influenza as well. So that's but that's sort of the unpredictability at the moment, which people are highly concerned about. Right. And uh, Dr. Pardell, um, Dr. Dana Sakharan, he, he just mentioned now that uh, the, the virus has uh, been found uh, in more wild bird species over the past two years. I mean, what does this actually mean? Is it, does, it, does it mean that um, um, it's unlikely that the virus will disappear again from the uh, bird population in future? Uh, no, I don't think so. It's, it, um, as, as, as I mentioned before, it's not uh, unusual to find uh, even influenza in wild birds uh, because they are the natural uh, host of avian influenza. So they are the natural carrier and uh, they, they, they have the viruses. So they are, it's not unusual to see uh, avian influenza in, in wild birds. Uh, what we just need to keep in mind is that we, we should implement the measures that uh, those viruses should not transfer to our poultry population and they should not have any threat to human population. So this is something that we need to uh, make sure. I mean, since the original avian flu outbreak in 1997, uh, we, we've really moved over time to restrict humans' access to birds. I mean, there are fewer and fewer people uh, interacting with live poultry in Hong Kong. I remember when I first got here, you know, there were live birds all over the markets. You don't really see that anymore. Um, have, we, have we kind of shut down all the, the most possible routes of transmission in, in the local community? Yes, uh, there are a lot of uh, strict uh, measures that, that the poultry industry should follow. And these are in the light of I mean, influenza control and prevention and as I said, the, the person needs to be vaccinated. Uh, there are only 14 countries in the world where the vaccination against avian influenza is, uh, is mandatory. And there are specific biosecurity measures followed in the, in the farm. And this is, again, to avoid the flow of pathogens to and back to human population. So this is something that's uh, going on in, in, in Hong Kong, very efficient, and I think this can be a very good uh, positive example for for rest of the world who are struggling with uh, prevention of avian influenza at the moment. Some countries, did you say some countries have a mandatory avian flu vaccine? Yeah. Which, can you just give me a couple, you said 14, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make you say all 14, but can you give me a couple of examples? I'm curious, I hadn't heard that before. For example, for example, all the boards in in in, uh, in in mainland China and Hong Kong are vaccinated against uh, 
against avian influenza. Uh, oh, okay, all the all the birds, okay. Yeah, uh, all the commercial birds that are used for uh, human consumption and so on. Okay. Um, I've got a, a I've got a couple of emails that we've got in here. Changing gears a little bit, Malcolm says uh, we've been wearing masks and social distancing for three years, which has led to reduced group immunity for viruses, which means that we have to continue masking and socially distancing. This doesn't look like a logical way forward. Um, do either of you have an opinion on that? Do we have we painted ourselves into a corner? Have we have we made ourselves permanently weak? Um, I can take that. Uh, I, I, I really think um, um, we didn't really expect a prolongation of control measures for really three years. And I really think that it's high time that the government started considering uh, dropping many of these um, um, uh, measures, which actually, you know, uh, hybrid immunity is good in the population, just as the, just as the, um, you know, the caller just mentioned. And, and, and really, I mean, the main concern in Hong Kong is really the public health system, which is not ready. Mm. Um, and, and I think that is why all these control measures and this prolongation of activities are happening at the moment. And, and Dr. Wong, uh, when, he, when he spoke earlier, he mentioned that the troubles with the public health system. And really, I think this is a long-term uh, problem. Um, it has been a problem even before COVID. And um, I think rather than, you know, the funding which you mentioned earlier, rather than actually spending for testing, it, all the funding should be literally going for upgrading um, and, and thinking about, you know, getting more doctors in Hong Kong and so forth. Okay. We, we try to read all our emails here. I've just got one more from David. It says, uh, masks stop oxygen getting to the body, so many people are going to be very short-sighted later on. I don't know if he means literally short-sighted or in their mental capacity and thinking um, and looking forward. Um, this, you know, when we talk about them, coming back to the masks, um, I, I traveled recently to both Japan and Thailand that do not require people to wear masks, and everybody does. The social pressure is so strong uh, that it seems like, you know, Japan, I would say it was probably 99% of people are wearing masks in public. Thailand, close, also maybe 100, um, even though it's not required. Uh, what do you expect will happen in Hong Kong when the government says we can demask? I mean, I, I, I really think that's a really good example of how uh, public health communication is acting really well and a very knowledgeable population where, you know, they are aware of the risks and they are wearing the population. And ideally, I'd expect the same thing in Hong Kong. Um, when the government, you know, um, is trustworthy um, and the, the, the people trust the government uh, in terms of these campaigns and, and goes forth and, and people are going to be. And that's exactly what we saw as soon as the COVID pandemic was announced in, in, in you know, late 2019, early 2020, when there was instances of or, or news that there was going to be outbreaks and people automatically start wearing masks. And I don't see any reason why the Hong Kong population would be any different. Um, but we should we should stop, stop really trying, you know, um, it's really unethical to disregard the collateral damage of COVID management and, and strictly we need to focus on and, and just focusing on those cases and just avoiding all these other aspects. Okay, Dr. Vijay, final word on the subject? Um, um, my final word is really, you know, um, there's a, this is a great time to get a booster for COVID-19. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a good flu, flu vaccine uh, available. Um, so get your vaccines. All right. Thank you very much. This has been uh, Dr. Uh, Vijay Krishna Danisakaran, the Associate Professor of Division of Public Health Laboratory Sciences at HKU School of Public Health, and Dr. Surya Padel, Assistant Professor of Poultry at the Department of Infectious Diseases and Public Health at City University of Hong Kong. Thank you to them for joining us today. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233 and have your say. 
All right. We are staying with the sciences today, but we are switching over to plant biology. We're going to hear about a new technique developed by local scientists to increase the efficiency of hybrid rice production. Uh, we have the leading scientist who's been working on this project, Professor Zhang Jinhua, Chair Professor of the Department of Biology at Hong Kong Baptist University. Good morning, Professor. Welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Uh, thank you for having me. Okay, Professor Tong, we were uh, looking at this recent advancement in the newsroom. I have an undergraduate degree in biology, what? mostly zoology, not plant biology. And I have to admit, we were a little bit challenged by this one. So we're going to have to ask you to break it down in such a way that the uh, non-biologist population can understand. What have you guys done? Okay, thank you. Uh, we have found uh, a gene mutation in the rice. Uh, the mutation will let the rice to only provide the pollen, the male part, but they cannot produce its own seeds. That means they cannot produce uh, embryo from fertilized eggs or, or from eggs. So this we call uh, female sterility. Mm. So we call the gene, we call female sterility gene mutation. Okay. And this is a good thing. This is something that you have been trying to achieve for some time, yes? Yes. We, 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 you know, female sterility is actually common, but never been well researched. The reason is female sterility means you cannot get the offspring. You cannot get the next generation. So they usually have mutation, they die. You don't have any seeds produced. The beauty for our uh, gene mutation is we found it can reproduce itself, recover its female uh, fertility at the lower temperatures for rice. The so rice, you know, is the high temperature plants. We grew them in the summer. But we found uh, this rice uh, grew on a lower temperature. Say if you use a well water, 23 degrees or less, mm -hmm. you can recover its female uh, fertility. So it will become normal, almost normal. Right. Mm. So, Professor Jiang, so what will this uh, mean for rice production? Will it mean uh, um, the harvesting costs will be cheaper? I mean, what will it mean? Will it be um, will it be more efficient? Can you tell us a bit about that? Okay. Yeah, uh, in addition to scientific merits to understand how it, it works, because it's very interesting how the temperature control uh, rise the female fertility. That's very big question, scientific questions. The, the application for this gene uh, we have is we can help uh, uh, in agriculture produce hybrid seeds with more cost, uh, less costly way to do that. The, the, because in, in rice, Hybridization produces hybrids. You know, today we everywhere everywhere use the hybrids. Hybrids means that the rice hybrids can have high yield, grow more quickly, grow bigger. Mm -hmm. So we call heterosis. This hybrid uh, vigor we call it scientifically. Mm -hmm. So we, if we use our technique, we can uh, have a purely male plant standing by, provide pollen or sperms as a human, purely provide pollens, but itself will not produce seeds. So we can grow the male plant next door to the female plant. The female plant will only produce seeds. So 
during the hybridization, we can have a perfect male. The perfect male is only provide pollen, but do not provide, produce own seeds. If you can do that way, you can use machine to harvest all the plants together because they grow each, uh, to each other uh, in the field. So you can have a machine to harvest them with much, much reduced labor cost to do hybridization. So that's the uh, that's the application for our technique. Okay, so you've got the you've got the male plants with the pollen you want. You can plant them next to the female plants. Yes. Where you can control when they are sterile, high temperatures, sterile. Yeah. Lower yeah, yeah, temperatures, uh, not uh, sterile. Lower temperature only lets them produce, reproduce themselves. On a normal and high temperatures, there will be perfect a male plant standing there, provide pollen only to reduce the hybridization cost. Right, and then you don't have to have two completely separate operations to provide the pollen. You can have them all in one field together, harvest yeah. them together at yeah. a much lower cost, and still yeah. have your high-yield rice. Uh, yes, we can still produce hybrids. You know, the rice is normally uh, what we call self-pollinated plants. So they have one small flower, uh, produce one seed. In these one small flowers, they have a pollen, which is uh, produce a sperm. Also, they have an ovary, which produces the egg. So normally, rice is self-pollinated plants. Normally, they cannot produce hybrids. So in agriculture, about 40 years ago, we had a breakthrough. And Professor Yuan Longping in China, mm. they found that a rice can be perfectly female plant because they cannot produce its own pollens. Right. We call, this we call... Uh, 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 male sterile because the, 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 this rice cannot have their pollen. So the male is sterile plant. So these male sterile plants can be a perfect female plant when we when we doing this hybridization. So now we have found a perfect male uh, uh, male uh, plant which cannot produce its own female uh, egg or seeds. So we can perfect the male, perfect female now. So in the future, you can imagine in the field, you have this, uh, this uh, early order uh, bred this uh, female plant, only produce eggs. You have male plant, only produce uh, fertile pollens. You grow them together, and then they will doing hybridization by themselves. You don't need to worry. Gotcha. And from the lab, from the laboratory and the research and the work that you're doing, how long will it take before this can be commercialized and be widespread in the fields where they are growing rice? Well, that's the challenging question. We have spent in the lab for 10 years to understand how this gene works and its function, where the gene uh, uh, mutation uh, uh, was achieved, this natural mutation. But in the future, if we put this technique into the real field to benefit the farmers, we still have several years to go because we need to, to produce the perfect um, male plant which, with all the good other features. Uh, then not, not just the uh, female sterility, you need other features to, to make the rice higher, good quality, resistant to the disease, resistant to the other natural uh, stresses. So that takes a long way to go. But uh, we have found a technique. Our technique is we can, you can use genetic technique, can very quickly to transfer these mutated genes to the good varieties, to the good uh, these, uh, uh, plants, 
uh, the cultivars we call mm-hmm. that can provide pollens. So, so there are quick ways and, uh, to do that. But still, we need a, a certification from the government. With, we need to collaborate with the seed companies to make it, make it work. All right. Well, we'll have to keep a close eye on your your research and the development of it. Uh, Once you've got the perfect uh, male rice, then you can call my (laughs) wife about getting to work on the perfect male husband. (laughs) Yes. That'll come later. It it cannot be be applied to human because human (laughs) is male and female are separated. Uh, Rice is different. The male and female sitting in the same flower. This is self-pollination. It's different. All right. Well, uh, (laughs) no way to reproduce. All right. Well, we'll we'll let you be the boss of the rice then, and we'll keep a close eye on your future progress. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Tsang Tinhua, Chair Professor of the Department of Biology at Hong Kong Baptist University, right down the road from us here at uh, Broadcast House. And uh, people, brace yourselves. It's time for your World Cup update. All right, we welcome you to the studio the Adam Bomb, Adam hey. Chung, the RTHK sports reporter. What do you got? Well, a lot happened last night. Uh, I guess uh, it's a good place to start with Japan. All right, an amazing win. Whoa, they Ichiban. Came from, that's right, Ichiban. They finished number one in their group, uh, qualifying for the last 16. This was a crazy finish. So it was Spain versus Japan. Spain were in first place going into the night. Uh, both sides. Uh, had to assume that Germany would win their last game against Costa Rica. And uh, it, it's natural to think that because the Germans are the four-time champions and they're in the last place, so they have to win to have any chance of progressing. So things started normally. Uh, Spain and Japan uh, both went up 1-0 in their respective games. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay, things are normal. And then Japan scored twice in the second Whoa. half. They came right back. And then Spain was still thinking, okay, we're in first place. We have a superior goal differential. We may still go through. But no, not if Costa Rica wins. Because they actually came back and took the lead against Germany. So Spain are like, oh my God, what are we going to do now? Then Germany scored three goals to finish the game. So Germany won 4-2. Costa Rica didn't win. So that means Spain and Japan both go through. Whoa, man, that quite a turn on it. And, and these games were happening at the same time. That's yes? right. Yes. So the coaches, the analysts, as the players are coming on and all, as players are coming off the field, they're, they're getting updates from the other match. Yeah, they'll talk about it at halftime. And I guess they'll talk about it at, at the bench as well. I just wanted to point out that this is a crazy performance by Japan. They've managed to beat two World Cup holders in the group stage. Spain and Germany. And is this is this some kind of team magic coming together, or do they have a couple of outstanding players that are making a difference? Uh, I've been really impressed with Ritsu Doan. He was the guy who scored the equalizer for Japan. And I think they just play really well as a team. Uh, also, Kaoru Mitoma, the guy who set up the second goal, is also a very speedy winger. So they do have a group of young guys who play as a team. Wow. Oh, so lot, lots of excitement. And uh, so we'll have to see. Watch, watch those two teams as they move through the rest That's of the That's right. Tournament. So Japan gets to play Croatia next. Uh, mm-hmm. Croatia finished uh, first in Group F. Mm-hmm. And Spain will play Morocco, who beat Canada, a game that you watch. I, I did. Think. I did. I was, I was on the MC track last night <laughs> and uh, went straight in my tuxedo to the pub to watch the game. Uh, it didn't end the way we wanted, but uh, yeah, give us, the, uh, give us the lowdown on that one. Yeah, well, I, I mean, Canada couldn't 
turn in a solid 90 minutes against these strong uh, World Cup level sides. Uh, they managed to do that against Belgium in the first game, mm-hmm. but not against Morocco and not against Croatia. So an early giveaway for the first goal, that was bad. But I thought Canada settled down in the second half. Yeah. Shout out to the captain, Atiba Hutchinson, 39 years old. Wow. He almost scored in the second half to oh, tie the game. It was heartbreaking. Yes, exactly. You know, this is going to be his last uh, World Cup. Uh, also, shout out to the Toronto boys, Jonathan Osorio and mm-hmm. Mark Anthony Kay, who got the start yeah. in midfield. So that ended 2-1 victory for Morocco. In the other game, finished 0-0 between Croatia and Belgium. Belgium are mm-hmm. out. Wow. They made it to the semifinals four years ago. Second ranked team in the world with a bunch of star players. Yep. In three games, they managed only one goal. I mean, all the predictions I saw were, were Brazil and Belgium in the finals for this World that Cup. That was my and, pick. And boom, they're gone. What's yeah, up with that? Yeah, that's it. So I think with teams like Belgium and um, Germany, they just need to get younger. Yeah. You look yeah. at Germany, they're still relying on their vests like Ilkay Gundogan, Thomas Muller. Mm-hmm. Belgium just looks slow. Mm. Uh, their defenders, Vertonga and Alderweireld, they're both in their mid-30s. Eden Hazard was really struggling throughout the tournament. And Kevin De Bruyne looked nothing like the way he plays for Manchester City. So they got to find some younger players. And uh, Roberto, Roberto Martinez, their coach, uh, stepped down after the game. So they need to totally regroup. I mean, okay, so for a country like Canada, they got, they got their first two goals ever in a World Cup. Everybody's feeling pretty good about it. They got there. But in countries like Belgium and Germany, is there going to be a bloodletting in the National Sports Association, the National Football Association's coaches, uh, yeah. talent scouts? Well, like I mentioned, Martinez has already quit as Belgium coach. We yeah. don't know about wow. Hansi Flick because mm-hmm. he actually only took over this team two years ago from Jogi Löw, who was mm-hmm. their manager for, I think, 15 years. Yeah. So Flick was supposed to bring a new brand of football to Germany. It didn't happen. And I think they really need to develop from within and just focus on the young players instead of putting together a bunch of guys who play for big name clubs they look like a bunch of individuals out there start developing young players if you're germany you got to feel good about a young kid that they have named jamel musiala Mm -hmm. who plays for bayern munich he looked good in this tournament uh uh, outside of him the rest of players were really just average okay uh thanks adam for coming in tc tongue i'll give him the final word one of our listeners said canada's performance was totally expected while it was tough it's good experience for canada as the next world cup as the 